Have you ever thought about how our world is being shaped? Where are we headed and what might we leave behind? You're listening to Nextcasts, presented by Swissnext San Francisco, where we examine the forces shaping our emergent future through conversations with scientists, entrepreneurs, artists, and designers. Hey everyone, welcome back to Nextcasts. So have you ever wondered what the future of education might look like in our increasingly digital times? Could you imagine a robot replacing a teacher in the classroom? We're still pretty far away from that scenario, but I recently had a conversation with a guy who came through our startup camp and he's working on something pretty unique that makes me wonder, will robots be the teachers of the future? Hey, Salim. Hi, Perrine. Salim's 27. He's passionate about education and technology, and he's the CEO and founder of a startup called Rosie Reality. Okay, thank you so much for joining us, Salim. Can you start by telling us a little bit about what you do? Thanks for having me on your podcast. So I'm working on Rosie, which is an augmented reality robot that is here to teach kids the basics of programming and robotics. And when we say augmented reality robot, it is very much what it sounds like. We use a digital robot, which is a digital 3D object, and we put it into the room or the environment of the user, meaning the user will need a phone or two or three years from now, glasses, that can visualize the digital layer that is on top of the real, real world and put the object in his room. So who did you create Rosie for? Rosie is mainly for kids ages eight and up. And um, we want kids in that age bracket to learn something about programming because you can introduce it in a very playful manner. You can use Rosie, which is a very cute robot. Um, if you think of comics, you, you, you could think Rosie as a comic robot that just comes alive in front of you. And obviously we use this cute little robot so that kids get naturally interested into what she wants to tell them or what she wants to show them. And um, yeah, I mean, the beauty is you can use gamification to teach kids something, you know, so it's, it's very natural. They, they learn by, you know, wanting to explore Rosie's adventures more or they, they learn by interacting with Rosie um, in a certain way. And I'm interested to know where did this idea come from and why is it important that kids learn to code? So um, two very broad questions. Um, so I, I'd like to unpack the first one. Um, where does this idea come from? It actually comes from Peter, my co-founder and I, um, working on a, on a real physical robot back in the days back in the days about, you know, mid of 2017. Um, we were working on, on, a, on a cute little robot that was about as big as, as the palm of my hand. It was a cube and kids could attach magnetic wheels and arms to it and could steer it with, with a phone. And we saw that kids really liked the concept. So, so they liked to kind of build their, you know, primitive but kind of cool personal robots 
and bring it to life using the phone. And for us, it was a very fun and playful introduction to whatever you call engineering, which basically is putting things together and bringing them alive, or yeah, make them come alive. And so we worked on this for quite a while, and we then got even some support here in Switzerland, in Zurich, from bigger foundations and also startup incubators that wanted to, to help us bring this thing to the market. Unfortunately, um, it showed that doing hardware wasn't, you know, I'd say the right call for, for Peter and me um, because we wanted to move faster and we didn't believe in, in hardware being the solution to the problem that we saw, which was having accessible education for, for everybody. Because at the core, hardware always has an intrinsic cost because of the hardware pieces, right? So you need to order them and, and this has cost to it. So we couldn't have Rosie at zero cost because we would just lose money and that's you know another business. Um, so there was this inherent problem because we wanted to make it accessible to all, but it was a quite high price tag on that thing. So we said, you know what, let's just do whatever we're doing right now in hardware. Let's just try to do it with software, which might sound weird, but for us it was, we saw what augmented reality could do because we were involved with previous Tango projects and um, also obviously because of the emergence of Pokemon Go. We kind of understood, okay, technology is at a point where you can take digital objects, 3D objects, and put them in the environment and make them come alive at a very primitive form. If you look at Pokemon Go, it was actually just a picture-in-picture -picture overlay. So it wasn't quite AR, right? It was just, we take a picture and overlay it with the camera. Um, but this was enough for us to say, okay, we could actually be building software or digital objects that feel like they're here, they're real. And this was pretty much the starting point of Rosie reality. So we wanted to have Rosie come alive, so bring it to reality. And this is how we then started. And obviously this would solve the problem of making it accessible to all because you can you know, show it with or show it to many people um, by scaling it through iOS or Android. And obviously you can cut down on costs while still having all the advantages of hardware. You know, at the end, this is what we really want to do. So we want to have software that feels like hardware. And the second question, I can't remember. Uh, so the question was, um, why is it important that kids learn to code? And I'm asking this question in the context of a stat I saw recently that said that 40% of kids in the US are, being, are now being taught how to code. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So what you talked about is that slowly but surely schools begin to understand that there is a huge shortage in developers when it comes to actually filling jobs. Um, I don't want to cite any statistics because I don't have them in front of me, but there is like a huge amount, maybe in post-production you can put it in, a huge amount <laughs> of um, jobs that are actually open because we don't have the developers for it. So I went back and looked at some stats and the US Bureau of Labor Statistics predicts that in 2020, there will be 1.4 million more software development jobs than applicants who can fill them. So it's, it's a lot of um, developers' jobs um, or computer scientists that are needed, but we don't have them. And obviously we need them because the world is moving into an era where software 
begins to disrupt any business field there is out there. So even if, if, if you think the, the obvious cases is anything that is based on a PC, right? Um, for instance, accounting. That's, I mean, obvious that software kind of eats that entire business. Um, but now non-obvious cases such as um, cars, such as, you know, um, moving from A to B is, is now being eaten by, by software because you have companies such as obviously famously Tesla who comes in and just actually sells software on wheels because thanks to the software, they, they can drive l longer um, because they can, you know, have, you know, look at, at their batteries in, in a more deep level, so to speak. Or they can begin to automate how they drive also thanks to um, computer vision. Um, so slowly but surely, software creeps into our everyday lives, into our physical world, and businesses begin to understand that they need to adapt. And the main problem is that our schooling system, and I can speak for Switzerland, is not preparing um, our kids soon enough to understand how to develop software. You look at primary teachers, their, their profile often is something that sounds like 45 to 60 years old and female, meaning they themselves have no idea how to code because it was never required for their um, field of work before. And if, if you now look at, at the emerging primary teachers, for instance, which is a profile still female between 20 to 30 years old, they understand that code is disrupting the world, but they themselves, again, were not exposed during their education to programming meaning how do you want to teach something that you yourself don't know? And obviously then it's also a confidence thing, right? You, you need to teach something effectively, studies show you, you need, you yourself need to be confident about it and you, you want to understand it to teach it. So there is this you know, inherent problem right now that the educators, they themselves are not confident enough to, to teach it at, at a primary school level. Talking about university, obviously, that's a completely different discussion. Um, but so we're focusing on primary education because we feel like starting a passion for something can be done when, when you're young and making kids understand that actually coding is something that is cool and that is part of everyday life. Um, I think that you know, you, you're gonna have, at, at, at the end, you're gonna have more kids that are inherently interested and driven to to understand something about coding. It's very much like back in our days, maybe it was chemistry. Nobody was quite understood what chemistry was for because it was so complicated and like, where do I use chemistry? Until, you know, at the university level, you begin to understand chemistry is everywhere around you and you begin to be passionate about it. So maybe you could, you know, show that programming and coding and let's say math and engineering is everywhere around you from a very young age to then drive this, this interest or this passion for this topic. Okay, so how do you, like obviously the speed of change is like increasingly accelerating with technology. How do you actually keep up with that and make sure that the, the, the tools that you're creating for these kids are actually up to date? You're right in saying that innovation keeps on accelerating and that it's a force that just keeps on getting stronger. And um, the way we think about it at Rosie Reality is to not teach 
skills of specific technologies, but much rather teach first principles. So we're interested in giving kids tools that let them solve innovative problems of today rather than just specific technological problems. And the way we did this is by internally calling it, um, we're teaching scientific thinking. But scientific thinking very much means the user or the student can de you know, look at a problem and break it up into individual smaller problems that they then can tackle and solve individually to then solve the complex big problem, right? It's very much you observe, then you come up with an experiment, then you look at the results, and then you, you have your conclusion. Can you describe that in the context of Rosie the Game? Sure. So, yeah, sure. So specifically for Rosie the Game, um, since so Rosie the Game in itself currently, in its current version, is, is based on a puzzle mechanic. So if you look at the game, it's actually a puzzle game that uses a three-dimensional programming language to solve that puzzle. So meaning you would spawn Rosie into your environment, wherever you are, for us right now in an office. So you would then spawn Rosie onto that blue floor and you would see it come alive in front of you in, in you know, two by two meters, so quite big. And you would be presented with a spatial puzzle, meaning you would need to understand how to move Rosie from point A to point B to solve that puzzle. And on the way from A to B, you will need to program Rosie to move forward, turn left, turn right, jump, push, pull, shoot the right laser, or get the right color of Rosie's um, laser emission. So you need to, to solve a logical problem while looking at a spatial problem, while, you know, at the end, solve the puzzle problem. Meaning there are different levels of, of abstraction you need to kind of go through to solve Rosie programming puzzle, so to speak. Um, okay, so now I just want to talk a, bit, a little bit about this, the startup journey that you've gone on. So Rosie Reality is an ETH spin-off um, that started just over a year ago. Can you give us a bit of a background of, of what this journey has been like over the past year? So it started yeah, officially beginning of 2018, as you just mentioned, beginning of this year. So about now 12 months ago and 10 days. And um, back then it was Peter Florian and me. Uh, and we were just pretty much prototyping on this AR app. And back then it was very alpha. So we had, you know, crude looking wireframes and just very, you know, if, if you would press the wrong button at the wrong time, it would crash. And even PowerPoint mockups, you know, that we just showed user. But at the core, what we were doing is setting up prototypes in, on a weekly basis and tested on a weekly basis with kids. And since we sit here at ETH, which is this pretty well-known university in Europe, or specifically in Zurich, parents just brought us their kids. They were like, yeah, sure, have my kids because you're a scientist, you're smart. If my kid spends time with you, I'm pretty sure he's going to be smart as well. So we didn't have any troubles testing our product with kids because obviously we marketed it as, okay, we, want, we, we have something that could teach kids about programming. So... Every, every week on Saturday, kids just came to our office and they were testing our product. And for us, obviously, it, it was hugely beneficial because in a very short amount of time, so every week, we could test our, our assumptions about the product and about the user behavior specifically. 
and get you know results. So on Sunday we crunched the data and we looked at the videos that we didn't take, and you know we looked at the pictures and everything. And it, like this, we were able to move very fast because we were user centered. And since I think we were very ambitious, or, or I'd like to believe we are, we then connected with some people in, in San Francisco mm -hmm. and were able to raise a so-called pre-seed round back then. So in January, end of January, we had data of about 1,000 users, and um, end of January, we, we raised a pre-seed round. And did, you, did you go to San Francisco? Actually, I didn't. Okay. So you did that from Zurich? Yeah, I did that from, from Zurich. Um, I'm almost ashamed to say, but I did it on Skype. And we raised about almost a million. And so we used then this, this starting capital, if you so want, to, to get a team together of now about 10-ish people. Um, so this was, this was end, of, end of January. And yeah, I mean... And what were their roles? Yeah, sure. So if, if you look at Rosie the product, since it's, it's a B2C product, meaning it's a customer consumer product, so we, we push it to the, to the consumer market and not to the schools, which is a whole other discussion why we do that, but maybe we have time afterwards. Mm -hmm. So um, w our team needed to be consumer focused. So you, you couldn't have just developers, which are awesome at developing, or you couldn't have just designers that are awesome at designing because then you would be too slow. With developers, you wouldn't have a product that's beautiful enough. Mm -hmm. So from the get-go, we were in the situation where you needed to have a world-class design team and a world-class developer team, so tech team. Mm -hmm. Because these product, these consumer products, obviously they need to look good that we use them, but they also need to work well enough so we use them. So we focused very much on this, so we had a pretty much a 50-50 split between designers and, and uh, tech people. And obviously sitting here at ETH gave us the possibility to hire people from ETH that um, helped us on, on the tech side. So our very first employee was someone from ETH, an undergrad, which is just amazing. He's like the best undergrad in the world, I think. So, you know, there, there are world-class people here in Zurich that, that you can use. When, when it comes to, to design, it's actually more difficult here in our immediate vicinity at ETH because, you know, consumer design is, is not as easy to pull off as people might think. And it's very much dependent on the designer as designers are the ones working on the front-facing portion of the consumer product. And what we found out through that year that we're operating now is that there are good designers out there who think they understand the market and just try to implement their vision into a product. Then there are great designers out there who sort of understand that they don't understand the market and they try to deliver on deadlines that you give them. Very often those great designers are so creative that it's tough for them to work towards a deadline or much rather um, even test their ideas with the market. And then there are world-class designers out there that we were lucky enough to find that understand to work with deadlines and that they understand they don't know anything about how a consumer might appreciate their design so they iteratively test with the market and the way we're set up currently is that every two weeks we ship the product to market because the team is humble enough to know that there are many things 
we don't understand yet about about the market. Um, and yeah, so these are the people we are looking for. Okay, it would be great if you could tell us a little bit about your startup journey and what happened in San Francisco. Let's let's talk a little bit about San Francisco. Sure, um, I love talking about SF. So um, the very first time after we raised our, our, our pre-seed, I went to San Francisco in April um, just to connect with our investors that put quite some money in us without seeing me personally ever. So I just thought of saying hi. And um, this was the first time I actually got in touch with the Swiss Next people. So I met Nick, Nicholas Dunkel, who I think back then was leading the startup camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, we just chatted and um, he showed me your gorgeous office on Pier 17. And yeah, I mean, ever since then, I, I knew you guys existed. Mm-hmm. I wasn't quite sure how I could, you know, benefit from this gorgeous office and, and the people working there. but. You know, I, I, in the back of my head, I knew that you guys are going to have a startup camp, something like this in, the, in this direction, and that I should be reaching out in due time. And after that period in April when I was there, I came back in, in August, exactly, for the startup camp. Yeah, yeah. so um, customer acquisition worked for Nico, and I applied for the startup camp, which was a great decision because, so first of all, the flights were paid, and my apartment was more or less paid for. So I think I got a stipend of $3,000 or something, which is quite nice, obviously. And um, you got a space at the Swiss Next office for three weeks or four weeks or something like this. And over the, the course of, of, of this time, you would get lectures on how to build your startup from ground up, on, on how to hire people and how to raise money on how to speak to people. So it was very much a crash course of Switzerland meets SF and how to get stuff done in SF. I think it was you had many early stage startups that really could benefit from it. I myself could also benefit from talking to Nico a lot and just being there physically. Um, Because yeah, as I said, the time was paid for, so obviously I did the most out of it and met all of my investors. And having a home base is just worth a lot. Somewhere that you can work um, out from or so, so, somewhere you, you, you can just, you know, get stuff done. It's, it's hugely valuable. And, and I think Swiss Next gave me the space and then gave me the people I can talk to. Mm-hmm. And can you talk about like the significance of it being in San Francisco? Sure. I mean, you know, being an SF, if so, if you yeah, if, as a startup, being an SF is like being a, I don't know, a culinary chef in Paris. I mean, it's the place to be, right? And SF being, you know, the, the, the place where founders meet startups and startups meet other entrepreneurs and, and um, investors, obviously, it's, it's really nice to, you know, to be able to have a home base from. Now, I'd say... Nothing just falls from the skies. So don't make the mistake and go to SF, spend a load of money on living there and you know, being there while not being proactive. So nothing just comes to you. So you have to work for it. You have 
to run after people. You have to constantly remind people, like send email reminders if they don't reply in two days, you know, like just constantly remind people. And I mean, the word hustle comes to mind, even though I don't like that word, but I mean, yes, it's, you have to hustle when you're in SF because the thing is everybody goes there for the same reason. So it's pretty much a zero sum game. And you know, you cannot believe that you're a snowflake, a special snowflake, cause you're not, I mean, there are, one million founders who want to do the same and there are just X amounts of dollars to be distributed. So it's, it's actually zero sum game. Yeah. So you gotta, you gotta be special in your own right to kind of merit the attention of whoever is important. Okay. So what is your opinion on the similarities and differences between the ecosystem in Switzerland and in SF? You know, this question comes up all the time, right? But not just in, in comparison with Zurich. It comes up with London, Berlin, like Tel Aviv, all of those places. And I think I'm getting annoyed about it because, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I just, I want to be honest, right? So, because I think you should stop comparing yourself to SF because SF is just a special place and it is special because it has a history, a legacy of building strong companies. It has tremendous amounts of experience that just sits there because, you know, you had companies such as HP and, and Cisco that, that were there at the beginning and, and made it Silicon Valley. So it attracted that talent very early on, like 30 years ago. And um, so this tremendous amounts of, ex of experience and, and the tremendous network that you have there is what makes Silicon Valley you know, special. It's this understanding of scaling companies very fast. So it's not, it's not just the money, because money is everywhere, especially in today's market. So it's not the money, but it's, it's the understanding of taking companies to a huge worldwide scale in like a couple of months or years. And now, actually, if you look at, at China, China's doing the same thing. So it's a very tight-knit community. The government helps young driven entrepreneurs um, to go to scale very fast. So if you look at, at for instance, the exit time in, in China compared to the US, I mean, it's ridiculous how fast they are. So I want to say you, you shouldn't constantly try to be the next Silicon Valley. I think you should focus on, on what makes your geography strong. And I wouldn't say Switzerland, there is not a huge amount of experience here. So we shouldn't focus on trying to get this huge amount of experience done you know, in the next couple of years because it's just not happening. You need, you need time for this. So that's why I'm kind of annoyed by constantly comparing. I think Switzerland should focus on, on what they're good at, which is, it seems right now, crypto. I don't know. It seems you know, that in Zug something is happening with, with crypto because you have all the big crypto people sitting there. Um, but inherently, I would also say maybe um, the finance district, so banking, could be a strong point for Switzerland. So I'd say stop comparing and just focus on yourself. You know, very much like these personal coaches tell you, like stop comparing to other people, like focus on yourself and, and get good at, at what you want to be good at. And um, yeah, I think Switzerland has, has a bright future because there's a lot of money. People begin to be more open to risk. So it, it starts to look like a place where, you know, great things can happen. Okay, so let's go back to a point you brought up earlier. Um, you've made a B, 
B2C product, not a B2B product. So why didn't you go into the education sector? Because if your goal is to teach kids to program and to understand the logics of programming, to me it seems like getting into the education curriculum would be a really great way to, to achieve this goal and also to scale your product. So I'd like to answer this question in two ways. So there is the obvious business answer to this question. That is, schools have no money and are very conservative to get in because in part they have no money and because just the minds that work in school are just not as receptive for disruptive technology as you know the, the common consumer in the market because they have a certain responsibility so they have you know the curriculum that they need to teach just a certain amount of time so it's pure logic that they're kind of conservative because they need to get a b c done so that's the business answer you, you couldn't build a viable business in enough short amount of time. The more meta perspective or answer on a meta perspective is maybe that I don't believe in schools as the only educational institution anymore. So if, if I look at schools, I see them as a institution that might be needed at a certain age of the student. It might be needed when the student is very young. So let's say between five and 12-ish, you might need schools because it's just good to have you know, regular patterns in your learning behavior and, and have a group of people that support it, which is your peers and, and your teachers. Um, but after a certain age, when, when you get old enough to think for yourself and act for yourself, it might be that schools are not the best educational system anymore. It might be that just extracurricular activities that you actually care about are the better way of teaching yourself something about this planet or teaching yourself about something that you care about. So this is why we went into the B2C direction because spending time in your free time and basically it's gonna be you spend time uh, with things that you care about. So the, the impact on your learning behavior or the impact on your personality on building you as a person is very strong. And I mean, the easiest example is kids who do sport. They define themselves at the beginning. Yeah, I play soccer, I play basketball, I'm a baseball player. And it's something they really care about and are passionate about. And, and they learn everything about how to, you know, kick a ball perfectly or shoot whatever, hit the ball with the bat perfectly. They spend tremendous amounts of time because they're passionate about it. So, you know, getting to kids in their free time and giving them something they can care about, after a certain age, I think it might be the better way to teach people. And obviously you can take this argument all the way up to university, which I won't do because it takes time to, to discuss it. But, you know, universities, I don't think are that relevant anymore. Um, when it comes to, 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 to today's workforce. Um, yes, network building, of course. You, get, you, know, you meet all the people that then become important to you in, in later life. But you know, for instance, sitting here in Switzerland, you could make the argumentation that learning on the job is much more efficient than trying to be an academic. You know, don't get me wrong, I think there, you're gonna always have this circle of academics, but circles intrinsically, you, know, you cannot break them. So you leave them, 
leave the circle of academics for themselves, you know, and have another group of people who actually want to get stuff done, who want to bring, you know, the planet forward. And I think there, you know, you could make the argumentation that universities are not going to play a huge role anymore, like 20 to 30 years down the line. Okay, Salim, so um, we're coming to the end of our conversation. Um, is there anything that you would like our audience to know that you haven't, that we haven't already covered? To end our discussion or our talk for him, I'd like to, to, I think, add once more the tremendous opportunity that we have using games as a medium that not only teaches people, but also makes people aware about things that happen around them and in the world. Because looking at games, people should stop looking at games as just this brutal medium that enables kids to shoot other people in a game. Because that's not what games are about. If you look at games closely at the industry, um, games are the, if you ask me at least, the ultimate form of art. Because it allows you to bring art to life in a fashion that otherwise is not possible. If you look at cinema, it's very similar, but you use actually you know, the art that is cinema and you make it interactive for the user to personalize the experience, which in my mind is very strong and a, can lead to very immersive experiences that can be very positive for this world. Thank you so much for joining us, Salim, and we look forward to hearing what happens next with Rosie.